All right, well, good morning, church. Listen, for those of you who, uh, who don't know me, my name is Will Franco, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I uh, want to say happy Mother's Day to you. It's okay. You know them back? All right. That's good. That's fine. Not excited either. All right. Amen. 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 I guess it's not that special for you. It's fine. Um, listen, so uh, this morning, we are taking uh, a break from our series entitled Weapons of Self-Destruction. And uh, the reason why we're doing that is because we want to take a moment and just pause, strategically pause, and reflect on Mother's Day. Um, Mother's Day, uh, like Robbie mentioned, is a, maybe it's a very special day for you. Maybe it's a very uh, sad day for you, depending on, on your context or where you're coming from. But this morning, we want to take a pause. And the, one of the reasons why I have my notes here in front of me is because, you know, the, the more I uh, prepared this week and meditated on this passage, I felt that I wanted this, this morning to be more of a devotional than a sermon. Uh, just the, the, the passage I was reflecting on, um, I felt like, you know what, I, 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 my wife makes fun of me because even when I do small groups, I get preachy. I'm just a preacher, right? But, but, but the more I, I meditated on our passage this morning, the more I felt like, you know, I want to make sure that this is more of a devotional uh, than a sermon, just because of the, the, the theme and, and even just because of the passage itself. Now, here's the thing, right? Be, before we jump in, uh, what I want to make sure uh, that we do today, and I want to just kind of lay this out at the beginning. If you're not a mother here today, you might be thinking, well, okay, this message isn't going to have anything to do with me. But my goal here this morning is to show that if you are a person who has any influence on the next generation at all, uh, then this sermon or this message has something to do with you. The passage that we're going to be looking at relates to mothers in particular, but it actually relates to all of us in general. And so my hope this morning, as we look at this, at this passage, is that if you are someone who is a, a, a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a ministry leader, or you are discipling someone or mentoring someone, if you have any influence on the next generation, then this passage, this sermon will apply to you, all right? So this is for mothers in particular, but in many ways for all of us in general. And the passage that we are going to be looking at today uh, is 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, uh, 2 Timothy is towards the end of your Bibles. It's in the New Testament. Uh, and uh, if you could turn there, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So I want to go ahead and read it for us, um, and, uh, and then we'll, I'll pray for us. But if you can please stand for the reading of God's word. Here's what it says, 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 5. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we come before you this morning, and Lord, as we 
reflect on this concept of a sincere faith um, and, and just get a better understanding of what this passage means for all of us, not just mothers in particular, but for all of us. God, I pray that you would be with me and uh, that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, we, we need you here. And uh, Lord, even though this is gonna be a more laid back message, I feel that there's a lot of truth that needs to be unpacked here. And so I pray, Father, that even as we do that, um, that you would be encouraging those that are discouraged, uh, that you would be reminding those that are on mountaintops that uh, this, is, this world is not all there is, that, that we have something better in Jesus. And so that regardless of where people are coming from today, I pray that you would give them hope wherever they are. And the only way that's gonna happen is, Holy Spirit, if you take your word and use it for your honor and your glory. And that's what we're asking for now. And we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. So here's how we're going to do it. This morning, we are going to look at this passage under two headings, okay? What Paul in, this, in these five verses in 2 Timothy does is he, he describes a faith, and he says that this faith that we are to be displaying, this faith that gets transferred from one generation to another generation is a specific faith, and it's a salvific faith. All right. Now, some of you may never have heard that word salvific. I'll explain it when we get there. Uh, but what he says is that this faith, that the, the only type of faith that transfers from one generation to another is a specific faith and a salvific faith. So these are the two headings that we're going to use in order to unpack this passage. So I want to begin this morning by looking at the specific faith that Paul is describing for us here. See, when, when Paul brings up the concept of faith, he says that the type of faith that transfers from one generation to another is a sincere faith. Everyone say sincere. sincere. Now, let me give you a definition for what the word sincere means. The reason why I'm putting the definition up here is because I want you to, to really, as I, as I use a word, this is essentially th this phrase, sincere faith, is essentially where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. So I want to give you a definition so that as I use the phrase, we're all on the same page on what it means. Okay, so here's what Paul says uh, faith should look like. He says faith should be sincere. Here's what sincere means in the Greek. It means genuine, transparent, honest, undisguised, and unhypocritical. That is the type of faith that Paul says we as parents, as grandparents, as, as mentors, as uh, 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 ministry volunteers should be displaying to the generation that comes after us, a sincere faith. And then the word faith, which, you know, so often in our day, we, we, when we think of faith, faith can seem so weak. It can seem so blind faith, right? You could think of faith as something that you're, you're placing your hopes, you're betting on something, hoping that it works out. But I don't want our definition of faith to, to misconstrue the biblical definition of faith. When the Bible talks to us about faith, this is what the word faith means in the Greek. It means confidence. It means conviction. It means trust. And it means reliance. So I want to give you the two words so that as I use that phrase, sincere faith, we can all be on the exact same page. Paul wants us to have sincere faith faith. Now, what I want to do under this first point, as we look at this concept of, a, of this specific faith, Paul's describing a very specific kind of faith, a sincere faith. What I want to do as I define this, I think that sometimes the best way to define a word is by giving you examples of what it is not, okay? And so what I want to do under this first point 
is I want to tell you essentially what Paul's not saying here. And as I describe to you what he's not saying, hopefully it will clarify what he's actually saying. Does that make sense? So here are the four things that Paul is not saying. The first thing that Paul is not saying is he's not calling you to have a perfect faith. The second thing he's calling you not to do is he's not calling you to have a religious faith. Another thing that he's not calling you to do is he's not calling you to have an inconsistent faith. And then the last one is a sincere non-trusting. So instead of looking at the sincere, uh, in the first three, I'm looking at the word sincere. In this other one, this last one, I'm looking at the word faith. Some of us, we don't have a, a bad definition of sincere. We have the wrong definition of faith. So we're going to walk our way through this. And hopefully as we look at what it's not, I, it will hopefully clarify what it actually is. Okay? So the first thing that Paul does not mean when he says that we are to have a sincere faith is he doesn't mean a perfect faith. See, one of the lies that we are tempted to believe, whether we are parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or ministry volunteers or mentors, is we might be tempted to think that the only way that we are ever going to influence the next generation is if our faith comes off as perfect. Now, here's what I mean. Now, some of you are like, man, I don't know, man, this is a weak point. You know, you're getting the weak point out of the way first. I get it. It's how preachers do it, right? But, but here's why this is not a, a weak point. This is why this is important. Because no mother, no father, no grandparent will ever say, I need to have a perfect faith, right? They would never preach that. But just because you would never preach it, it doesn't mean that's not what you're actually living. I, I don't care what you say. I think every single one of us, including myself, there, there are times, many times, where we get up in the morning and we say to ourselves, this is the day I'm going to get it right. This is the day I'm going to be patient. This is the day I'm going to uh, uh, pray and read right and, and, and not raise my voice and uh, not get loud or whatever. You know, this is the day. And it's some, sometime around noon, 3 o'clock, you're like, yep, maybe I'll get them again tomorrow. So, so even though this concept of perfect faith, no one would ever actually say it, I think deep down it's the lie that many of us believe. That if I could just get enough advice, if I can just have enough patience, if I can just do enough things, I can maybe one day have a perfect day in parenting or in grandparenting or in influencing the next generation. We might never preach it, but we definitely live it. For some reason, and I'm not sure why this is the case, one of the things that we are tempted to do uh, as parents and as grandparents and all those people that I listed is we are tempted to hide our failures from the people that we're influencing. But here's the thing. The reason why that's so ridiculous is because they see your failures. They actually see your failures more clearly than you see your failures. There are a ton of blind spots that you have that they know about and you don't. So when you try to display a perfect faith, like you have it all together, and you try to hide your failures... Not only is it not helpful, but it's dishonest. It's not helping them. Okay? So one of the things that Paul is not saying when he says we are to have a sincere faith, he is not saying that we are to have a perfect faith. But that's one of the things that Satan does. One of the reasons why Satan has so many parents and grandparents and, and people discouraged when it comes to influencing the next generation is because we all believe the lie that if we can just do enough, we can just pray enough. If we could be faithful enough, 
we could get to a place where we made it in that area. That's a lie from the enemy. There's nothing biblical about that at all. Here's the thing. When you are attempting to display a perfect faith, here's what happens. And you don't even realize you're doing it. You end up not confessing or repenting of your sin in front of these people, this next generation. But here's the problem. If you don't confess and repent to them and in front of them, they're never going to learn how to confess and repent. Did you know that you are the person, if you're a parent, that God has put in your child's life to teach them what confession and repentance looks like? If you think that faith has to be perfect, and as a result, you don't confess and repent regularly in front of your children and your grandchildren, then what you actually start to teach them is that you don't actually need Jesus. So the, the, the child or the grandchild grows up thinking, well, if mom and dad don't need Jesus, and grandma, you know, grandma and grandpa don't need Jesus, and my aunt and uncle don't need Jesus, then I guess I don't need Jesus either. So in your desire to protect them from sin, you actually keep them from the Savior. We have to get to a place where we are honest with our struggle. Remember what the word sincere there, it means, it means to be honest. We have to get to a place where we are honest with our struggles. And by that I mean that not only should we confess sin when we sin against our children, we should confess that. Listen, if you're a parent here and you've never confessed to your child, it's not because there's nothing to confess. It's just because you haven't done it. All that tells me is there's a backlog of things you got to address. Okay? But I would argue that it's not just confessing and repenting for the things you've done to them. I think it's important for us to show our kids that we're struggling with our faith. And we're struggling with trusting God. And we're struggling with, with our own battles. Obviously, there's some things that you can't share with them. But I would say the majority of the things you can. And I think it's healthy for your kids to know that you don't have it all together. Because if you present a perfect faith, then there's no need for a perfect savior. See, one of the things that happens when we try to present ourselves as a perfect parent is we keep our children from seeing the actual perfect parent, which is the father. We can actually get in the way of the father. That's why what, this quote that I came across, this, this comes from uh, Joel uh, Beek, um, and he's this uh, just reformed pastor who wrote a book on parenting. He says, listen, what children need to see, listen to this, is not a perfect mom or dad, and certainly not a mom or dad who never says, I'm sorry. They need to see in us an unwavering commitment to Jesus Christ, an unconditional love for them, and a strong bond of love for each other as husband and wife. Listen to this. The need to see a mom and dad laboring shoulder to shoulder of whom the children can say, my mom and dad hate sin, they love God, and their only hope is in Christ Jesus. Then they keep going. This is a kid's quote, right? He says, they, they want with all that is within them to live holy and godly lives. I can see it. I can feel it. I know it, it is true. And I know it, it is real. And that word sincere, just that's the language that Paul uses. And I want to be like them. I want the God of my father and mother to be my God. 
I, that's my prayer for my daughters. I, I don't want my daughters to think I have it all together because all you know I don't. I want them to know I don't. And I want them to get to a place where they look at me and say, man, if, if God can save this dude, if God's grace is sufficient for him, then it sure as heck is sufficient for me because he's a hot mess. That's my prayer for you and for, my, and for me, okay? Now, let's look at the other thing it doesn't mean. The next thing that sincere faith doesn't mean is it doesn't mean religious faith. Now, I would argue that this one's even a bigger temptation than the first one. You see, because, again, no one would ever preach this, like, no one would ever say this, but when you look at how we live functionally, many of us is exactly how we live. We actually believe in parenting by works, salvation by works. But, but here's interesting, okay? Some of us believe in salvation by works and parenting, but when we think of works, we think of our works. Or some of us, or maybe you do both of these, you think of salvation by works, but you think of your children's works. So, so let, me, let me unpack these, okay? The first one is salvation by works and parenting or grandparenting by our work. So here's what people think. They think, if I can get my child in the right environment, if I can get them in the right school, if I can get them uh, in, in, in the right Bible study, if I can get them in the right extracurricular activities, if I can get the right verses in them at the right season, they will turn out okay. And we treat parenting like it's baking. Like if, like if all we need is as long as we put in the right ingredients and put it at the right temperature, everything will come out okay. Here's the problem with that. That's religion. That's not Christianity. Because the idea that I can do these set certain things and everything will come out okay, that idea is actually religion. God, I did this right. Now it's your turn to bless what I did. Parenting is not baking. But we believe it, though. We would never say it, but that's what we believe. We believe that if our works are worthy, then God has to bless our parenting. But I can tell you that when you look at Scripture, some of the best parents in the Bible have some of the worst kids. So what that tells me is that that's not how it works. And some of the worst parents have some of the best kids in the Bible. Okay? But here's the other thing. As we talk about this idea of parenting or salvation by works, a lot of us, if we're being honest, as we parent our kids, and I know I do this all the time, I would actually be very content if, I, if, if you were to, you don't even have to put truth serum in me. I can tell you this with full honesty. When I see myself raising my daughters, I think there's a part of me that would be totally content with my daughters being nice instead of being made new. Honestly, like when I see how I discipline them, when I see the things that bother me, when I see the, the behavior modification that I try to force on them, it's so funny how I, I preach. I, I think Tri-Village can, can be put up against any church in America on gospel-centered preaching. But then Monday through Saturday, I use, instead of using God's love, love, I'm using God's law to raise my daughters. I forget the gospel I preach immediately after I leave here. And what I've seen in me is that I actually would be very, very satisfied if by the time my daughters got my age, they were nice and not new. Because I can do nice. That, that's on me. I can make them nice 
polite, law-abiding citizens. But only God can do new. Listen, I'm going to let you know, whether, whether you have kids already or you're about to have a kid or, or maybe God will give you kids in the future. And whether, whether this is a niece or a nephew or a grandchild, especially for grandparents because they definitely don't believe this. That child is a broken, depraved sinner. And nice isn't going to fix that. You can make them as nice as you want. They don't need to be made nice. They need to be made new. That's why C.S. Lewis, in, in one of his books, he says, you know, if Satan ever took over, I think it's Britain, but let's just use America as the example. He's like, if Satan were ever to take over a country, a lot of people think that sin would be rampant, you know? A lot of people think that, 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 that everything would be terrible and, and, and it would just be like Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. But what he says is that if Satan actually took over a nation, it wouldn't be that way. He says everybody would actually be in church and everybody would be very respectful and very committed and very religious. And what Lewis says is that if Satan actually ever took over a country, it wouldn't be sinfulness, it would be man-made righteousness that you would see. It would be a bunch of people settling for nice instead of new. And how many of us do the very same thing with our children? Do we worry about their salvation? Of course. But at the end of the day, if we're being honest, we just don't want them to embarrass us. Make me look good and make me look like I did my job. Don't embarrass me in public. Shake hands when you got to shake. Look people in the eye when you got to look them in the eye. Get a job, move out. <laughs> Some of you are praying for that right now. <laughs> right? But when, listen, when, when we tell our children that the goal is to be made nice, not to be made new, what we're actually presenting them is a Santa Claus Christianity. To be good for goodness sake, because God's watching you. God gets demoted to, God and the angels go from being in heaven to being Santa and his elves. That's why, I, I don't even know why I'm bringing this up, but that's why I want, that's one of the things I, I don't do. I'm not one of those guys that, oh, that's a secular holiday. I'm not that guy. But one of the things I don't do is the elf on the shelf. Because, that, because the whole concept is you're being watched and you got to do good. That's religion. I saw, that's literally, I'm not so sorry if you do that. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to judge you right now. I'm just saying that's why I don't do it. Because it's that. It's, it's, it's taking God and putting him on the, at the level of Santa and the elves. Are you on the, the naughty list or on the good list? See, the thing about God's law, part of the reason why I think we use it so much Part of the reason why I think it's our default setting is because it works. It works in the short term. God's law always works in the short term, right? Like you, you, you do it and it, 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 like, it like gets results. You just got to raise your voice or you got to raise the standards or you got to uh, 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 make a bigger consequence, whatever. And, and God's law always works in the short term. So that's why I think for a lot of us, since we're so busy, since we're so stretched, we got so many other things going on in our life, we default to God's law. God's love takes time. But God's law is, you get quick results. But God's law never works in the short term. Listen, 
if God's perfect law couldn't change your heart, why do you think your sinful law is going to change your child's heart? Have you ever thought of that, about that? The perfect law of God couldn't save us. But we're convinced that the imperfect laws of our house are going to save our child. We need to show our children that the focus of the gospel is not obedience, it's remembrance. The, the center of the gospel, obedience is part of it, right? But the center, the, 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 the true center of the gospel is not obedience, it's remembrance. It's not about go and do, it's about what's already been done. That's what we got to show our kids and our grandkids and the next generation. Let's look at the next one. The next thing that Paul doesn't mean is he doesn't mean, when he says sincere faith, he doesn't mean an inconsistent faith. Now here's, before I jump into this one, there's a few words that I want to unpack there, right, in this passage. Paul brings up, remember what we said sincere means. Sincere means unhypocritical. Now, the Greek word for hypocrite is a very unique word because the Greek word for hypocrite, it was it's actually a word to describe the actors in Paul's day. So in those days, you would go to this big open-air theater, and at this theater, the, there would be actors who would wear masks, and they would tell a story, right? It would be a play, essentially. And what they would do is they would speak out from under their masks. That's what it means. So the word hypocrite literally means to speak out from under a mask. So if we are called to live unhypocritical lives of faith, and then the other word I want you to see in the, in the passage, if you're, if you're following along in your Bible, is that he, he uses the word live twice. He says the, word, the, the, the faith that lived in your grandmother and mother and now lives in you. The, the, the Greek word therefore for live means to dwell, to reside, to inhabit, to remain. So what we see is that what that word implies is that it's a faith that's consistent. It's there no matter what. No matter what season you're in, the faith remains. Okay? And then the last thing, the last word I want to see before I jump into this, this, this third point is Paul, uh, Paul says that he's, he looks at them, and, and look what he says in verse uh, 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded. The word there, persuaded, means I have concluded after careful evaluation. So Paul's saying, I have looked at the lives of your, your, your grandmother and mother. I have looked at your life, and after careful evaluation, I have concluded, I am persuaded that you have a sincere faith. So I, I bring all those Greek words up to say this. A sincere faith means that you are not to have an inconsistent faith. Now, here's what I mean by inconsistent. Many of us, if we're not careful, the songs we sing on Sunday have no impact on how we live Monday through Saturday. The person or the couple you are as you drive to church, it's like your kids see you putting on the mask. Like they, they can see it. The music you're listening to on the way to church is different than the music you listen to all week, if there's any music at all. And all of a sudden, as we, so when you start getting close to church, hey, hey, stop fighting. Hey, 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 you better put a smile on your face. And the mask come off because we're at church. That's what we do at church. 
So when I bring up inconsistent faith, what I mean by inconsistent faith is if sincerity means to be not hypocritical, if it means to be genuine, to be honest, it means that the person you are on Sunday is the person you are on Monday through Saturday. There has to be a consistency. There has to be an integrity. That's what the word integrity it comes from the, the word uh, uh, integer, which means one. So integrity means you're the same person everywhere you go. So I want my daughters to see that I'm the same person on Sunday that I am uh, on vacation and that I am when we're on a trip and that I am when we're at a restaurant, that I am when we're at home. And there's integrity there. Same person all the way because the reality is, and you, many of you have heard this before, but, but many of the things that we do as parents, a lot of what our kids pick up is more caught than taught, right? You can teach whatever you want. I, 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 the other day, I, I came across this, uh, this business book, and he said that every organization has explicit values and implicit values. So the explicit values are the ones that you see on the wall when you walk up. But then when you start working there, the implicit values are the things that they actually value. doesn't matter what the wall says. It's what they actually value when you start to get to know the people in the organization. That's the same thing that's true of parenting. You can have all the explicit values you want. Your kids are picking up the implicit ones. What are we, what are we really about here at this house? So... One of the things that I want to share with you just, just really quickly, and then we'll move on to the next one. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Paul is talking to, so this is a little bit later on, the same letter that we've been in. Paul is talking to Timothy, and he's, he's calling him to preach God's word. And he's calling him to stand firm in the light of persecution. He says, but as for you, he says, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because of this, because you know those from who you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus so his mother and his grandmother it, it, they weren't relying on Sunday school for him to learn the Bible they weren't relying on the youth pastor they, they weren't relying on the Christian school they weren't relying on just the preaching that they got on Sunday morning. They, they went out of their way, it says, from, from his infancy to make sure that he was aware of and learning the Holy Scriptures. And that's what I mean by the, the consistency, that you're, you're the same person all the way through. You, you are making sure that God's word is impacting Monday through Sunday. You could see it there. He's saying, hey, I need you to stand firm in, in the word of God that you have been taught from the beginning. And the only people he could be talking about are his grandmother and mother because we're about to discuss in a second that actually Timothy's father wasn't a Christian. So it couldn't have been him. It only could have been them. The, listen, if you want your child, your grandchild, who, your, your niece, your nephew, to, to, to take the step of salvation, there first needs to be revelation. There can't be salvation in a vacuum. There must be Revelation. What are you exposing them to? Because here's what, what God's word in the household does. If God's word is, is, is accurately communicated in a household, it, it actually takes all the confidence the child has in themselves because it, it, it tells them all the time, you're a sinner. God's word will do the work for you if you present it accurately. It, it takes the hope away from them, and it puts their hope in Jesus. 
and shows them, hey, you are a hopeless sinner, but you have hope in a Savior. One of the, the stories that I came across this week uh, that really encouraged me uh, is uh, this story about Charles Spurgeon. I, I actually didn't know that Charles Spurgeon uh, was, uh, his father was a pastor too. I didn't realize that. I thought he was a first-generation pastor. But I came across this quote um, from this retired pastor named Stephen Cole. And look what he says about Spurgeon and his relationship with his mother. He says, so he's quoting parts of the book, but this is a quote from Stephen Cole. He says, in an earlier chapter, he's talking about this autobiography that Spurgeon has. He says, in an earlier chapter, Spurgeon tells how every Sunday evening, his mother would stay home with the children, read and explain the scriptures to them, and plead with them to think about the state of their souls and to seek the Lord. He remembers one time her praying, listen to this, this is his mom praying for the children in front of them. Now, Lord... If my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my, listen to this. Think about how hard it would be for a mother to pray this. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. He says, Spurgeon, that thought of a mother's bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. Spurgeon's father was often away from home preaching. Once, as he was on his way to a service, he feared that he was neglecting his own family while caring for the souls of others. So he turned back and went home. When he came in the house, everything was quiet except for the voice of his wife behind the bedroom door. He listened and heard her pleading earnestly in prayer for the salvation of all her children and especially for her strong-willed firstborn, Charles. His father thought that his wife was caring so well for the spiritual interests of his children, he could go on about the Lord's business. So he left again for his preaching engagement without disturbing her. This is a woman who had a sincere faith. In no way is she saying she's perfect, but it's a woman who consistently preached Monday through Sunday, or Saturday what, what, what they were talking about on Sunday. She, she literally, and actually what it says in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel it says that we are called to be watchmen. And all a watchman does is tell the people when there's an impending attack. What the people do is not on us. Our job is to tell our children that they're sinners in need of grace. We can't control what they do with that. But we have to get to a place where we can pray and say to the Lord, it won't be out of ignorance that they didn't accept it. Okay. Okay, last one. Um, the last thing that it's not, it is not a sincere non-trusting. Now, now, now if you see what I did there, I, I kept the first part sincere, but I changed the second part now. Some of us are very sincere. Your problem isn't sincerity. It's very easy for you to be honest with your children. Your problem is the faith part. Remember what we said faith means? Faith means to trust. And some of us are very sincere about our lack of trust. We are an open book. Okay, here's what I mean by this. Remember what I brought up earlier. Timothy's mother was married to a Greek man that every scholar I read this week said he was not a Christian. He, was not, he did not know Jesus. So she was living in a house, and for those of you who've ever experienced that, it's hard to try to raise children in a home when the father is not a believer. So she had to trust God. 
She had to. It was the only thing she had. Because it was living in a home with someone who did not believe in Jesus. But not only did she have to do that, but they lived in a very secular place. They didn't live in Jerusalem. If you look at the book of Acts, I, I think it's, it might be Lystra that they're from, that, that Timothy's from. So it's, it's a very secular place. This isn't, so not only is it a secular home, because the father's not a believer, but he was living in a secular context. So this woman had to trust God. It's the only hope she had. There had to be a sincerity and a, a trusting, a reliance, not on herself, but on God. So here's my question for you, okay? If faith means to trust, to rely, as your kids, as your grandkids, as your nieces and your nephews spend time with you, right, what do you actually trust in? Well, what are they seeing you actually relying on? Like, like, like what, what, remember what Paul said. Paul says, I have carefully evaluated you and I have I've been persuaded, I have concluded that you are, you have a sincere faith. As your children, grandchildren evaluate you, because they're going to, whether you want to or not, what will they determine that you trust in? What do you actually rely on and trust in? Because your kids will know. If you trust more in your bank account than in your Savior, your children will know. If you trust more in your retirement or you trust more in your abilities or you trust more in your personality or on your resume or on your track record or whatever, whatever you trust more in, your children will know what you actually trust in. I've never, so, I've never seen a child ever accuse their parent of a lack of faith. But we all have faith in something. The question is, what is your faith in? What are you actually functionally trusting in? Remember, the explicit, implicit. One, one, one author said that children have like x-rays when it comes to what we really value. They see right through what you claim to value and know this is what they actually value. And you know how I know it? Because almost always they bring it with them into their marriage then. So if you come from a family that really values money, then all of a sudden you get married and you have money problems. You're fighting about money because that's what you saw growing up. A dad who's always worried about money. They bring it with them. Okay? So here's what I need you to see. Hopefully by now, as we looked at these four things, right, the four things that sincere faith doesn't mean, my hope is that what, that what it does is it gives clarity to what sincere faith is. Sincere faith is a faith that walks with Jesus, is honest about Jesus, confesses sin, uh, uh, is vulnerable, finds their identity in Christ. It's, it's hey, I, I'm gonna, I don't know about you, but I, personally, as I was wrestling and studying this passage, this is part of the reason why I felt it had to be more of a devotional than a sermon. Because my goal isn't to condemn anybody here today. My goal is to actually let you, let, let you off the hook. Because sincere faith isn't easy, but it's a lot easier than these. All I got to do is be honest with my kids and not a hypocrite. And tell them I need Jesus just as much as they do. Does that make sense? So, Paul calls us to influence the next generation with a specific kind of faith, and it's a sincere faith. So let's go back to the two points. Now that we've looked at the sincere faith, what I want to do in the second point is I want to look at the salvific faith. Now, I'm talking about the same faith, right? 
But here, here, here's what I want you to see. One of the things that you might be tempted to do, and I know you might be tempted to do it because I was tempted to do it as I was preparing this week, is you might hear that idea of sincerity and you're like, got it. That, I can just say amen, pastor. I got it. From now on, I'm going to be sincere. And I, I got it. You're right. I, I needed to hear that. I needed to be reminded of that. Uh, I'm going to be a better grandparent. I'm going to be a better parent. I'm going to be a better aunt, a better uncle, a better minister, a better, you know, better in my ministry or in the volunteer role I'm in. I, I, I can't wait. I, I'm, I got it. Thanks. Just close it out. You might be tempted after the first point to assume that this is all on us, which is actually one of the things that bothers me about this passage. This is a very well-known passage to preach on Mother's Day. But almost every sermon I came across, almost every commentary I came across, they only focused on that phrase, sincere faith, gave you four steps on what sincere faith looked like, and then left it there. And so you leave thinking, okay, it's on me. I got it. But here's what's so interesting, though. If you zoom out from just verse 5 and you look at the entirety of the five verses that I read, what we see is that Paul is not just describing a sincere faith. He is also describing a salvific faith. See, because if all we do is stop with a sincere faith, then you might leave thinking that, it, that you can do it. That if I try hard enough, I can do it. But what I love about that, the, the salvific faith that Paul describes is that salvific, which means saving faith, faith in something outside of you, right? Saving faith. It forces you. The moment you bring up salvific faith, you're like, okay, well, it looks like my faith is going to have to. It implies that outside help is needed. Because we can't save ourselves. I've tried it. I don't know if you've tried it, but it, has, it hasn't worked. I've attempted many self-salvation projects and never finished it, okay? So by salvific, I mean a saving faith. And what saving faith tells me, I'm not sure what it tells you, but I know what it tells me is that it implies outside help. It implies that if I'm really going to display the faith that God is calling me to display, my help has to come from somewhere else. It has to come from somewhere else. Now, you might be asking, where, where do you get this concept of a salvific faith? How do you know that it's not just a sincere faith? Why, why, why do you say that Paul's also describing a salvific faith? Well, let, let's go back to the passage. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Then he says, to Timothy, my dear son, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I did a word study on that word promise. And you know what the word promise means in the Greek? I actually found this very fascinating. It actually means a declaration or an announcement. Paul says that I am writing to you and, and, and my motivation to, of writing to you is the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And the word promise means a declaration or an announcement. Why is that important? And why does that phrase, promise, show us that it's a salvific faith? Well, here's why. Because when it comes to parenting, what a lot of us want as parents is we want good advice, right? We're always looking for advice. Hey, I, need, I need good advice, man. I'm struggling. You, can, you got some advice for me? Okay, can you tell me what to do about this? I just need some good, good, godly, biblical advice. Well, here's the thing. If all we got was advice, then Christianity would be different from no other religion. Christianity would be different from no other self-help book. But what we see by that word promise, which means a declaration or an announcement, is that God didn't come to give us good advice. God came to give us good news. 
See, see, good advice, when you get advice, you can either take it or leave it, right? And when you get advice, it implies that you have to do something with it. Now I've taken it, now I got to go do. But news is different from advice. News is either you live in light of this news or you don't live in light of this news. Either you fully embrace it or you don't. So advice is all about do. News is all about done. That's why what we see is that the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. But before it is good news, it's actually bad news. Because what God, what God does is through his law is he shows up and exposes you as a parent. And exposes you as a sinner. And exposes you as a failure. But the reason why God does that is because he has to dash your false hopes before he gives you a real hope. Part of the reason why a lot of us are not clinging to the real hope of the gospel is because we're still clinging to the false hopes of religion. So God comes, and the first thing he does is he proclaims bad news. You can't do it. But then the, the bad news prepares you for the good news, which is Jesus already did it. That's why then in that same passage, he then describes to us what this good news is. He uses three words, and I don't even have time to unpack these words because each one of them is so ridiculous. But he says, this good news consists of grace, mercy, and peace. Okay, now let me, let me unpack just quickly. The word mercy means kindness or concern for someone in serious need. You know the reason why a lot of us aren't receiving God's mercy today? Because we don't think we're in serious need. In order for me to receive God's mercy, I have to admit I need mercy. I have to admit I can't do it. I have to admit that I am in serious, serious, serious need. The word grace means God's unconditional gift or favor. It's God's unconditional favor, his unconditional love, his one-way unconditional favor and love. That's what, that's what grace is. But the thing that is most likely to keep you from grace is grit. The thing that's most likely to keep you from God's love is God's law. I don't need a cross because I got a ladder. And then the word peace means tranquility, rest, or an absence of strife. I don't know about you, but when it comes to my parenting, I don't experience this. I don't know what it is to have tranquility, rest, or an absence of strife. I don't know what that's like, but I can tell you why I don't, because, because peace is the output, mercy and grace are the input. So, so the reason why I'm not experiencing God's peace is because I'm not willing to receive God's mercy and grace. So a lot of everyone, everyone here wants God's peace, right? Amen. Like well, we would love God's peace, but we don't want to admit we need his mercy and grace. Peace is a result. It's the output from that input. Every day I have to be willing to admit that I am insufficient so that Christ can be sufficient. Like John the Baptist says, every day I must decrease so that he might increase. We're all good with him increasing. We just don't want to decrease. Can't we do both? Can I make much of you and much of me at the same time? No, you can't. And especially not in your parenting. Okay. So if we are given peace, 
What does this peace look like? Here's what it is. This peace, if you truly embrace the gospel in your parenting, in your grandparenting, in, in, in your influencing of the next generation, it affects your identity and affects your expectations. So here's what this peace looks like. The first thing that it affects is it affects your identity, okay? Now, here's, here's what I mean. So often as parents, we are tempted to take credit for the good things our kids do. But here's the shadow side of that. When you take credit for the good things your kids do, then the shadow side of that is that you're going to take blame when they do bad things. Okay? Follow with me there? If you take credit when they do good, then that means you are going to, by default, take blame when they do bad. Because it's all on you. It's all about what you do. That's the shadow side of that. So, so we get puffed up when they succeed and we get crushed when they fail. Our identity is found in our children. But, but if the gospel is true and we're already loved and we're already accepted and we're already approved of, my identity is not in my child. So I can't take credit for when they do good and I can't take blame for when they do bad because they don't belong to me. My identity is not wrapped up in them. I'm not puffed up or crushed. I am a steward, not an owner. But the other thing that it does when it comes to your identity, right, this peace, it impacts your identity because remember what I brought up earlier. One of the things that we are tempted to do is we are tempted to, to, to fall into perfect parenting. We will never say it, but functionally that's what we try to do every single day. And so Satan shows up and says, well, you're imperfect. And what a lot of us do as parents and grandparents, what we do is we're like, well, no, I'm not. Look, look what I did here and look what I did there and, 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 I, and I made them gluten-free snacks. And we find ourselves trying to convince Satan that we're perfect. You know what we need to do? You're right. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect, Satan. And here's what's beautiful. What God does is when you place your faith in him, he gives you his perfection. So you're, you're, you're perfect in position. You're not practically perfect, but positionally you're perfect in Christ. So the perfection has been given to you, but not because you've earned it. It's been given. And that's what you got to tell Satan. Listen, look, look, look. I'm not perfect in myself. I can't earn it, but I've received it. And in Christ, I am. So, you, so mother, let me specifically talk to mothers here. Your primary identity, your motherhood can describe you, but it should never define you. Your primary identity should not be the daughter of this child. Sorry, your, your, your primary identity should not be I am the mother of this child. Your primary identity should be, I am the daughter of this king. But it doesn't just change your expectations. I mean, your identity. It also changes your expectations. Listen, if the gospel is true and this peace starts to seep into your, into your influencing of the next generation, then all of a sudden you realize that as parents, we're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. Did you know that? If the gospel is true, I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. The results aren't up to me. They never were. So not success, but faithfulness. Another thing that changes in our expectations, if this piece is true, is we stop settling for nice children and we start praying for new children. We stop settling for that cute grandkid on Facebook that you just think is the most adorable thing in the world. We start, settle, we start settling, settling for them becoming nice, and we start praying for them to become new. You got to look at your kid, and you got to say, I am not enough for you. 
And the older you get, think about it, every day your child, every day your child continues, if they're healthy, they continue to get older, right? Every day your child needs you less and less. The quicker you embrace that and point them to the perfect parent, the better it'll go. We are called to give our children a Christian heritage, not a Christian heart. I can give my children a Christian heritage. I can't give my children a Christian heart. Only Jesus can do that. And that's what we got to pray for. Our faith can be displayed. It cannot be transferred. It cannot be inherited. Money can, but not faith. That's why in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. I don't know if that's good news to you, but it's good news for me. That salvation belongs to the Lord. So if you have a prodigal who's not walking with Jesus, salvation doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. And so you pray in the freedom of that. That you can't save them because you never were supposed to. And if you could have, then Jesus wouldn't have to come die. What your child needs is not ultimately the best environments or the best. This is what the thing about millennial parenting Child, your children need the best environments and the best play dates and the best education and the best snacks. No, I, no really, they don't actually. Actually, the more kids you have, the less you care about the next one. Like, you're like, <laughs> I, I did all organic stuff for the first one, and now it's like I'm, re, you know, I'm giving them expired food, you know, the little. <laughs> they don't need environments, play dates, education, they need Jesus. And until you become convinced of that, your parenting won't change. In Isaiah 49, I'm going to conclude with this. Isaiah 49, look what it says. It says, this is beautiful. God takes the most powerful human love, which is the mother's love for their child. And he says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child who she has born? Look at this. Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I wonder what that's talking about. Your walls are ever before me. He takes the most powerful human love, and he says it pales in comparison to the love I have for you. Listen, as a mother, you're willing to do anything for your child. But as a savior, God already did everything for them. The only thing that's stronger than a mother's love for their child is a Savior's love for his child. Amen? Let's pray.